HVAC 360 is brought to you today by the Sweet But Sweaty Corporation. Today, we're introducing our latest product, the Mug Mop. Don't let this summer heat turn your face into looking like a melted candle. Grab the Mug Mop and regain your respect. Complete with an ergonomic handle and antimicrobial pine-scented fabric, just wipe your mug and wring the mop out in the included belt-mounted mini-mop bucket. One quick pull of the bucket lever and you'll be ready to wipe your face again. Mother Nature never stood a chance. Sweat stops with the Mug Mop. Hey everybody, welcome back. Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. Each week, I'm either sharing information and lessons learned from the field or talking with industry experts. This week, we're going to actually take a question that I was posed uh, or that was posed to me. And that question is, if there is a 10-foot rule between the outside air and the exhaust air, why don't pieces of manufactured equipment have to follow that same rule? All right. I'm going to start this episode off because we're going to be talking a lot about code. I'm going to be starting it off with a disclaimer. Obviously, this is not engineering advice. Uh, this is merely a um, educational experience for you. You're going to have to do your own work. This is a valuable skill that you're going to have to develop over time. Uh, you can't rely on anybody, not even me, uh, telling you exactly what the, what the code interpretation that you are engineering to. I'm just trying to help you kind of go through what my process is. I'll show it to you, and uh, we can actually see if we can't answer this question. Having said that, let's get into the research. All right, so the first thing we want to do is we want to look at what is in this question. What can, what can help us out? Uh, we know that, for instance, this 10-foot 10 10 foot rule is provided to us by code. So whether it's 10 feet here... It's some metric amount in some other countries, you know, Canada, Australia, UK. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be something. Um, and they probably have similar codes elsewhere. But for the most part, I'm going to be talking about U.S. codes. So when I talk about U.S. codes, uh, I'm, gonna I'm going to reference the International Code Council. Uh, so the International Code Council mechanical code for most states is going to be adopted in some form or fashion. Uh, they might make certain amendments. They might make certain changes. They might even, at a local level, if your municipality is big enough, they might have specific things that they're going to add, subtract, or add or subtract to it. Um, this is very specific, and, and again, this is why I put the disclaimer in the front of the show. You're going to have to do your own homework. Um, but again, this is homework that that you know is, is you know it's kind of fun to you know go back and forth and find out exactly what you can learn from uh, analyzing this and, and getting, getting your own, reaching your own conclusions. So typically, uh, what I found is the International Code Council, the mechanical codes for most states are available online. You can view them. Uh, they are, it's not something that you necessarily have to go out and purchase. So if you want to do this at home and play along, um, you know, grab your laptop, look up the International Mechanical Code, and uh, we'll go from there. So... There are two sections that, when we look at the International Mechanical Code, 
There's going to be two sections that, when we look down the list of chapters that are included in the International Mechanical Code, uh, that are going to just pop out at us right away. There's going to be Chapter 4, which covers ventilation, and Chapter 5, which covers exhaust systems. So, again, when you were looking at this and we're going through the codes, this is one of those essential skills as a designer uh, that you're going to want to have. Uh, even if you're a contractor, it might not be a bad idea to be able to know exactly how to go through uh, code language, code books. Some of the language might be a little bit, you know, obtuse. It might, you might, yeah, I use a difficult word to explain that things might be difficult to understand. That's, that's really good. Thanks, Matt. Um, so what we're, you know, but it, it's better to know how to go through the codes than blindly following supervisors and things like that. Uh, people, your higher-ups, you need to be able to know this information for yourself. And if it's different from what they're telling you, it's a, it's a good opportunity to have a, a, a great in-depth discussion about why they feel that way. Why did they say this when the code says something else? They might not have realized that uh, you know, the codes change. And that's, that's the thing. Codes change all the time. And it's really important that you keep up on the latest code cycle. A lot of this stuff, you know, the 10-foot rule has been around for a long time. So a lot of them don't really change that much. But when they make those subtle changes, you should be aware of them because, you know, it can throw you off and you're ultimately responsible for your own designs. So having said that, codes change and it's, it's, it's important to know that you really need to keep all your sets of codes. Uh, I know that when I was growing up as when I was growing up as an engineer, uh, one of my duties was be to when the latest changes to the code came out, uh, they'd give me the sheets and they'd have me replace certain sheets that were updated. Now, I couldn't just throw the old sheets away, even though that's kind of what I thought, but it, it's important not to throw those sheets away. It's important to keep what changes were made in what year. So you could reference that. That would be kind of a cover sheet. And then you'd keep all the pages that you changed out after that. Um, that's really important because if you have a design, say, for instance, uh, a building that you were working on had a problem, but it was designed under the, uh, 19, or the, the 2013 code, and you looked under the current code and it said something different, and you're like, well, wait a minute. Why did they do it like this? Well, you can't look at the current code for something that was built in 2013. It was built, built under that code, so it had to follow those rules. So you go back and you look at the 2013 code and see what had changed, what applied, and if it, if it made sense for that. So you really need to keep all that information kind of going forward as you're designing. You just can't throw it away. It's it's a it's a you know essential for some you know code reference. All right. So again, we're looking at the two chapters. Chapter four covers ventilation. Now, when I talk about ventilation, I really mean uh, outside air. That's <laughs> that's that's an easy easy equation. They talk about and you know it's in, it's so important because you know words really matter here. A ventilation means something very specific to. Uh, in the code language. So, of course, it means outside air, but it, it also kind of has a certain nuance about it. So, it's really important to, to know that 
each one of these words you can actually look up, go back, and kind of figure out and and identify. And that's some of the things that help you understand um, the different pieces, parts of the code. So when required, that's in 401.3. You know, it's it's basically you want to ventilate a space when it's occupied. Really, it, if it's not occupied, you don't have to ventilate a space. It doesn't need any outside air. So it's it's interesting just to see the code actually spelling that out. When nobody's there, you don't need to you don't need to ventilate it. You don't need to put any outside air into that space. Now, if you're not familiar with it, there's two methods of actually going about and ventilating a space. You can either do natural ventilation or you can do mechanical ventilation. Now, the natural ventilation, those include things like windows, windows doors, louvers, uh, really anything to the outside that is readily accessible by the occupants. Uh, it's, it's what they control. So an operable window, they can go and open the window and get, get ventilation air, and that would be uh, fall under natural ventilation. Mechanical ventilation, is, on the other hand, is going to be some, uh, some mechanical system that, that's going to use a fan to move air from one point to another. So they differentiate those two pieces. We're going to be focusing more on the mechanical ventilation and the intakes regarding that. Speaking about that, you go to the next section, 401.4, and that talks about intake openings. Now, there's really different, you know, four different categories that the intake openings fall into. And this is kind of like where to locate the intake openings. So the first one is you want to make it sure it's 10 feet from lot lines and other buildings. Okay. Well, that really doesn't address our question, but it's interesting enough. Number two is it has to be uh, at least uh, 10 feet horizontally from hazardous or noxious sources. So uh, this is uh, the other vents alleyways, loading docks, things like that. They, and they go through a specific list. And again, it's so important to know exactly what you're calling or what you're looking at, uh, because if it doesn't fall in that category, then you have your engineering judgment to say, hey, it's not listed like that. I Here's the intent that I think it is, and this is the way I'm interpreting the code. So you can have your engineering opinion on this. So if it's less than 10 feet horizontally from one of these noxious, hazardous sources, it has to be 25 feet above those. So um, that is the stipulation for number two. Number three is that if it's uh, three, feet, three feet or more below a contamination source. Now, that's the very important key there, contamination source. Um, then it has to be... If it's, if it's three or more feet below, then it can be within 10 feet. So basically, if your outside air is underneath your uh, exhaust area or your noxious contamination source area, uh, then you have to be three feet below, but you can be within that 10 feet. Um, if it's on the kind of same line, you can be 10 feet away again, uh, but that three feet below allows you some separation. Um, I assume that they, they're they going to figure that the noxious fumes are going to go up. They're going to be more buoyant, so everything's going up. Uh, so I think that's why they allow that uh, particular uh, exception to or, or rule to be followed. And the number four is, is, is some flood zone requirement. So I'm not going to include that in this discussion. But again, all the words matter. Um, specifically... Uh, 
and if you didn't know this specifically, if, it, if it's not described within that section, um, there actually is a chapter uh, called definitions. So if you're unclear about any of these words and what they exactly mean in the code, you can go up to the uh, definitions section, the definitions chapter, and take a look at that. Um, now, the, the first one, obviously looking to answer this question, the contamination sources, that really um, kind of identified exactly, um, you know, what I'd be looking for. So contamination sources is important. So I, I, I put a pin in that, and um, I looked up some of the other things. Ventilation. Ventilation, actually, uh, per the definitions, is a portion of the supply air that comes from the outside. So again, easy answer. It's outside air, but it's a portion of the supply air. Exhaust, uh, exhaust systems are ducts and assemblies, all their different uh, openings and stuff like that, that take air from the space and exhaust it directly to the outdoors. So again, the ventilation exhaust system, the ducts and assemblies. And what the, the important thing that I pulled away from the exhaust system is that it seems like it's not part of, um, you know, there might be a fan included, but there, it doesn't really say that it's being exhausted to a piece of equipment. Um, it seems almost separate. And I think that, in combination with these contamination sources, um, really uh, supplies some sort of information that we could dig into a little bit further. So it happens that uh, contamination sources has its own little uh, paragraph, and I'm going to read that to you now. It's, it's 401.6, contamination sources. So st stationary local sources producing airborne particles, heat, odors, fumes, spray, vapors, smoke, or gases in such quantities as to be irritating or injurious to health shall be provided with an exhaust system according to Chapter 5. So, obviously, spray, vapors, fumes, again, those noxious uh, things that uh, are really, uh, really objectionable, that are injurious to health, that are irritating, um, those are kind of, when I'm thinking engineering-wise, those are going to be those going to be pretty important. Um, you know, I, I guess when I when I think about it, you know, if you were to sit outside of an uh, air handling unit uh, where the uh, the relief was or the exhaust was, and you were to sit there all day and just breathe in that exhaust, it probably wouldn't bother you. It probably wouldn't irritate you. It probably wouldn't injure you at all. Um, so that was one of the things. And I think, again, it's important maybe to redefine what we classify on an air handling unit. And this is just specifically for an air handling unit. Um, that your outside air intake and your exhaust, maybe the exhaust is the wrong word. You know, per code, maybe that's the wrong word to use because it doesn't really fall into that category of, you know, producing all these, you know, odors, fumes, etc. Um, because, you know, ultimately, you're going to be, you know, returning a portion of what you're, uh, you know, you're bringing back. You're going to return a portion of that, and the rest is going to be relieved. You know, you're going to have this, you know, you're going to bring in outside air. It has to be a zero balance. So there's amount of outside air, and the amount of relief air should be equal if you're keeping just kind of a neutral air balance. So the return air comes back. And that's obviously not noxious 
because you could use it if if the you know the, if the conditions were right. You just reuse it, but you have to bring in some outside air just to kind of you know dilute uh, and and provide ventilation for the spaces because they don't have you know, you're providing mechanical ventilation in this case. So to keep the air balance neutral, you got to get rid of some of the air. And I think calling that air that you get rid of exhaust maybe a little bit of a you know you're doing yourself a disservice by naming it that. Maybe relief is a better word for that. And again, using a relief doesn't trigger the exhaust connotation. So that being said, for air handling units, I think relief is the right word to use. So for air handling units, if you have your relief and your outside air intake close to, close to together, I don't think that's a big deal. I don't, I don't think that's a huge deal. And I think that generally speaking, you know, that would satisfy the code. So to answer part of the question, that's that's okay so but we don't want to necessarily stop we want to be able to analyze the entire code we don't want to have to go through and just analyze a uh, particular um you know just just one of the chapters you want to make sure that you can go to both of the chapters read through it and just have a a complete uh understanding of what you're going to make your decision based on so we look to the um, we look to chapter five. So we go to chapter five now, and we look at the exhaust. Now, I think it's important that uh, we understand what is what is the independent um, uh, what is the exhaust system is. So uh, on five hundred one point two, independent systems required. So this is where it's required: single or combined mechanical exhaust systems. Uh, for environmental air shall be independent of all other exhaust systems. Um, okay, that's curious. What does that mean? Dryer exhaust shall be independent of all their systems. Type one exhaust systems shall be independent. Type two exhaust systems for food proper food processing operations shall be independent. Kitchen exhaust and uh, things like that. So again, you 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 talk about things that might have noxious. If you had to stand in front of uh, a fume uh, or a fume hood or a food, uh, a food exhaust, a food exhaust fan, uh, you know, that might be, you know, objectionable. You know, the, the smells, you might have, you know, the grease-laden air that might affect you. All of those things could affect you. Uh, so it's important to understand exactly uh, what that is. So now you look into a little bit further about the location of the of the outlets. So so what are they talking about? You know, and, and especially again, it's key. What are they talking about? What are they talking about when they are talking about exhaust outlets? So the exhaust, the location of the exhaust outlets. You know, number one, they're talking about something that's ex- explosive or flammable vapors. Okay. That is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about explosive or flammable vapors so that we cross that off. We talk about product conveying exhaust, product conveying outlets. And again, what exactly that is, I'm not sure, but I think they're talking about lighter than air particles. They're talking about dust. They're talking about uh, different things that contain you know, actual physical material that could be breathed in and again, be harmful, noxious, injurious to your health. Um, and whether I'm saying injurious, right, I'm not sure. I'm an engineer. I'm not an English major. All right. So 
Now we get to step three. Step three actually has a, a bunch of what we're talking about because it says for all environmental exhaust. Okay, that's pretty all-inclusive. You have to be three feet from a property line, three feet above an operable window. Again, that's the same thing that we, we heard about uh, uh, before. And it needs to be 10 feet from any mechanical fresh air intake. Okay, that's, that's fine. So such exhaust systems shall not be, and this is, this is listed in, such exhaust systems shall not be considered hazardous or noxious. Okay, so when they put these guidelines in for three feet, three feet, 10 feet, again, they're not hazardous, they're not noxious. They wanted to reiterate that fact because they already covered explosive and flammable. They already covered product conveying. They wanted to make sure this is not considered hazardous hazardous or noxious. And again, that's getting back to that, uh, you know, contamination sources kind of definition. Um, number four, they have, a, again, they have the floodplain. And then five, they have specific sections uh, that have more information for different systems like, um, you know, sub-slab soil exhaust systems, smoke control systems, refrigerant discharge, um, you know, closed dryer exhaust. Those all have specific requirements that are found elsewhere in the code. So the one thing uh, that really did uh, bother me was that when we talk about uh, the different, uh, different systems, so the scope of the exhaust in 501.1, they talk about you know some of the mechanical exhausts, closed dryers, cooking appliances, hazardous exhaust systems, Dust, stock, refuse, conveyor systems, subslab, soil exhaust systems, smoke control. And then this one thing hit me, and I'm, I was like, okay, I was so sure and so certain. They said, energy recovery ventilation systems. I'm like, what? I'm like, what? Where? What? I, I didn't get it. I'm like, why are they linking you know, energy recovery ventilation systems in with the rest of them? And... You know, really, it seems when we t when we take a look at it, and again, they have their own section on you know these these uh, you know these different systems. So if we go down to um, you know what is it five fifteen, we'll find that these energy recovery systems, again, where they're required by the energy code, um, you know, are gonna are gonna have to follow some of the things. Um, again, it seems that. The intent here is to um, not have them, you know, they're prohibited from a lot of the different uh, different systems, unless it's just solely a sensible heat uh, coil type heat exchanger where there's no possibility of cross-contamination. So ultimately, and I think the one thing we have to understand is that ERVs come in a couple different flavors. Uh, they come in indoor flavors and outdoor flavors. The indoor flavors, obviously, you are going to have them ducted. Uh, so the ducts are going to be, you know, when it when a duct, when it's separate from the piece of equipment, when you have a duct that's going to be an exhaust duct, uh, that has to follow those same rules. So if it's a ERV with an exhaust duct and it goes through the roof, it has to follow those same rules as applies to everything else. But if it's an outdoor unit um, and you have the, the relief and you have the outside air, I think, um, or the exhaust and the outside air, rather, because you're not, you're not necessarily relieving anything. You're exhausting everything for the energy recovery wheel. 
uh, the whole purpose of it. I think that is where you really have to start using your engineering judgment. Um, you have to know exactly what you're exhausting. And you have to know, um, is this going to be hazardous? Could you stand out there all day and breathe it in and not be affected? You know, what is coming through there? Is it, is it simply just general air from the space that you're just trying to get some heat recovery on because you have to get rid of it to get a neutral air balance in the space? Is it going to be an exhaust system that is coming from toilet rooms? Is that going to have a particular odor? Because they do list odors as one of those things, uh, in addition to vapors, fumes, all that odors. Is it going to be objectionable? Is it going to be strong? Um, you certainly don't want that being re-entrained in your ventilation system. And that's, that's part, of what they, uh, part of what they say is that you don't want to have it be entrained in the, uh, in the air. All right. So my answer to this question, do they have to follow the same rules? And I would say, in my engineering adjustment, if it's an air handling unit, no, because it's not a valid contamination source. Your relief air is not a valid contamination source. If it's an ERV, if it's if it's something where you're you know taking you know toilet exhaust or a large amount of toilet exhaust, you know there's some ERVs that that I know that. Uh, when you take a look at the calculations, they say, okay, let's limit to the toilet exhaust to 10%. Now you have some dilution factor before you exhaust it. That, I think, is valid. I think that anybody supplying a, uh, a rooftop ERV is going to have you know, some sort of uh, understanding of, of you know, this, this exhaust is going to be directed in a certain direction, and they're going to be pulling outside air in a different direction. Usually when you take a look at those ERV units, a lot of times it's around the corner. Um, curiously enough, I thought about that, and I'm like, is, is, is there something about a corner that becomes magical? Like if it's taking uh, outside air through uh, the back end of the unit and on the side you have the exhaust uh, for the ERV, I couldn't find anything relating to uh, the corners. Um, anything that I did find was still, you know, about that three-foot mark, but there was nothing specifically saying, okay, you know what, it has to be three feet in either direction, you know, from, from, the, from the corner. But I didn't, I didn't necessarily find anything that was concrete um, that I would be, you know, willing to ba base an engineering judgment on. So, obviously... You want to put a big asterisk here. No, I don't think that the equipment has to follow that, especially when the contamination sources are not, you know, what's listed in Chapter 4. But in the same regard, you still have to be intelligent about your design. You still have to be intelligent about where you're placing your equipment. Should you line up an outside air intake with a relief from an adjacent unit? No, I don't, I don't think that's wise, engineering-wise. I think you'd still want to keep that separation just because it makes sense, just because it, it may be a little best practice. I mean, there are clear uh, things that you need to identify, uh, and you want know, to make sure that they don't, don't necessarily line up. Um, I'd be a little, even a little bit more careful when you're doing an energy recovery unit on the roof because it is a little bit of a gray area. I'd keep things away from that exhaust, uh, that exhaust side. But I don't see anything concrete, you know, forbidding it. And again, I would hang my hat on that 
uh, contamination source type of verbiage. Obviously, it's one thing when you're dealing with all your own stuff, exhausts, outside air intakes for a mechanical engineer when you're going through the design. But I'd always put a, uh, a word of caution. Remember, there are other people working on the building. Don't forget about you know things like the emergency generator exhaust. Uh, you don't want to uh, forget about uh, plumbing vents and things that the plumbing engineer might design into the project. You have to be aware of all those different possible sources of noxious and hazardous um, contaminants, and you have to account for that in your design. All right, so that's my answer to the question. Do appliances, do, does rooftop equipment have to comply with that 10-foot rule? So I hope that was helpful. Um, you know, that is by no means definitive in the code. It's not directly addressed, but I hope this kind of takes you through the process of, you know, finding the chapters that are relevant. You kind of go through, read through each chapter. Some chapters apply, some chapters don't, um, or some paragraphs apply and some paragraphs don't. And you have to kind of go through the whole the whole process um, for yourself. And again, I would encourage you to kind of go through, I've highlighted some of those, uh, uh, it, it should be roughly the same, you know, uh, chapter four, chapter five, take a look at that. And I encourage you to go through it yourself. If, if this is something, if you're a designer, if you're, if you're new to design, I encourage you to go through that exercise. Because again, it's going to be one of those skills that you're going to have to use over and over again. And, you know, things change. So keep up on the codes. Make sure you know how to do it. Make sure that you're aware when the code changes. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you learned something here. Um, if you're looking, uh, if you know somebody who's looking for information about this or who's newer to, you know, being a designer, you might want to share this episode. And I really appreciate that if you pass this along. If you're not a subscriber, uh, go over to HVAC360.com. And join the growing community of people just like you. And lastly, I'd be honored if anybody considered leaving me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps everybody out um, trying to get this information out to people. Um, If you're on YouTube, jump over there, HVAC360.com or HVAC360. Look that up and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Again, that helps me do some special things in the future if we get enough people signed up to do that. All right, well, that's it for this episode of HVAC 360. I'm Matt Nelson, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know. 